Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Johnny Smythe, a bomber navigator, prisoner of war, and the mastermind behind the Windrush. Oh, not another POW. I thought we'd cross that one off the list after Peter the Scrounger Stevens. We really don't need another one, do we? You're obsessed with the war, Osborne. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. Well, you know, as Josh said, uh, yeah, well, this is going to be a long old series then. <laughs> not but, everyone is war-related. Oh, well, no, not everyone <laughs> is war-related. And you've got to look at the bigger picture. Mastermind behind the Windrush. Oh, go on then. Hang on, wait, what, what, you're in? Oh, I mean, okay, Johnny is one of the best people you've ever heard of. I hear you, but he's still never heard of. Okay, yeah, never heard of. It's quite okay. But, you know, I can't believe my luck. Here we go. Johnny is born in Sierra Leone. That's West Africa. And it's part of the British Empire at this time. This is 1915, and he's a Creole. That means he's descended from freed slaves from America and the Caribbean, rather than indigenous African people. Johnny wants to be a lawyer, but he has to quit the training after his dad dies and the family runs out of funds. Okay, hang on, I'm drowning. There are so many facts there. So why Johnny? Three things about Johnny. Number one, because he's one of the very few black air crew during the Second World War. You've heard about the Battle of Britain pilots, the few Yeah, of course. Never in the history of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. Absolutely. It's no lie to say that they saved a nation and stopped a German invasion. There were around 3,000 of them. Now, Johnny and his African and Caribbean airmen, well, there were 500 of them, give or take. The very few. Okay, so that's your first reason. Number two. He's captured when his plane is hit. He's on a sortie. Hang on. What's that? What's a sortie? Um, uh, a, a raid, a mission. Okay. Getting in his plane and going somewhere. And he's on he's on sortie number 27. A tour lasts 30 sorties. And true to form, the last five trips are among the most dangerous. There's around a 50-50 chance of dying. Wow. Even bailing out is dangerous. If you're on a Sterling bomber, as Johnny is, only one in four of you will get out safely once it's been hit by enemy fire. And around one in seven aircrew would, like Johnny, be captured. The big thing, and the difference for Johnny, of course, is that he's black in Nazi Germany. He's no longer one of 500, he's one in 5,000. Sorry, can you explain the 5,000 figure? Uh, That's the black population in Germany during the war. One in 5,000 people living in Germany are black. Just to put that into some sort of perspective, in Britain, it would have been more like one in 50. In Germany, one in 5,000. Okay. So, Johnny is sent to Starlag Luft 1 in northern Germany, alongside people like America's top fighter ace in Europe, a guy called Gabby Gabreski. Oh, and he's also in there with Harry Day and Jimmy James, two of the real great escapers, and wait for it, Donald 
I can't see a bloody thing. Pleasance, the forger from the film The Great Escape, is in there with him as well. You really enjoyed doing that impression, I'd didn't s- you? Absolutely. <laughs> um, All right, so that's two, two points. Number three, then. Trump card mentioned this before. Johnny masterminded Windrush. All right. No, I have to admit, that sounds really impressive. Although, what does he masterminded Windrush really mean? Well, the, the Empire Windrush, for starters is a ship which is generally seen to mark the symbolic beginning of multicultural Britain. In June 1948, it docks in London and 800 people from the Caribbean disembark. And the whole thing happened because of Johnny. What? Yeah, I think I've got you. That is the sound of being well and truly hooked, so tell me more. We're in Sierra Leone and Johnny's teacher opens up the world to him. He gives Johnny and his classmates Mein Kampf to read. And 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 this is this will be in the 1930s, and this is what Johnny says. We read what this man was going to do to the blacks if he gets into power. And he attacked the British and Americans for encouraging the blacks to become doctors and lawyers. It was a book which put any black man's back up, and it put mine up. That was a bold move. I can't believe a teacher of all people had the front to give them that book. How depressing. Oh, I I think it was rather inspired. I mean, Mm. the the teacher, whether it was a he or a she, I'm assuming it was a he, wasn't pushing Nazism upon them. He was showing them what it actually meant, turning Hitler's word against him. Uh, Which meant that when war finally does come, Johnny's very clear what he has to do, and he signs up the RAF. Mm, Well, I don't blame him, actually, after reading that. And how many people are we talking about here? In terms of Africans in the war? Well, the numbers are a bit tricky to find, but it feels that there are around about a million Africans either fighting or carrying out war work for Britain, with a further quarter of a million doing the same for France and other European allies. And yeah, Johnny actively volunteers, but many others don't. Instead, they were, it was called conscription, but it's more like 19th century. They, they were essentially press-ganged into the war, whether they liked it or not. Okay, and, and how is that different from a white British soldier's experience? Oh, very simple. If you were white in the British Army, you were paid up to five times more than black African soldiers. Oh, five times more? That is awful, although not massively surprising, sadly. I mean, this comes from... It's an official document. Anyone can see it. They're not trying to hide it. It seems perfectly normal to the establishment at the time. And it's it's about what were called the war gratuity payments, which soldiers received at the end of the war. A European private gets 10 shillings for every month of service. And when we say European, we're effectively saying a white private gets 10 shillings every month of service. But if you're an African private, if you're black, you get three and a half shillings. Ten or three and a half. And if you're a non-fighting African private, uh, driving trucks, something like that, you get two shillings. So that's ten if you're white, two if you're black. That is just awful. I really want to come back to this and, and cover it properly, you know, really do it justice. It's a bit of a detour from Johnny. I don't want to lose track of him, so let's go back to that in a later episode. Yeah, okay, you're right. I mean, 
Johnny's experience will be very different from that of an African squaddy. He is rigorously trained, one of only four from a group of 90 to complete the navigator training, and his job is to climb into a big metal tube, point it to where it needs to get to, and then drop bombs on German cities. Sure. And crucially, and unlike the Americans who were rigidly segregated at the time, Johnny does all of that in a mixed-race crew. Okay, he's the only black man in it, but there's a brilliant photo of him with his last crew, all seven of them. We'll put it on the website, trappedhistory.com. They're pilots and Aussie, arms around each other, smiling, looking nervous, and, and Johnny, cap at a jaunty angle, hands in his pocket, he simply towers over them all. He's six foot five or something. And how does he feel about that? About what? Well, about being the only black man in the crew. Well, towards the end of 1943, he's promoted to flying officer, and this is what he says. Standing in front of the notice board, I still refused to believe what I saw and read. An officer in the RAF. From that moment, my life completely changed. I no longer ate with the other ranks, and I socialized only in the officer's mess. Airmen had to salute me all the time. What made me so uncomfortable as an officer was not that I was the only black man to be promoted to that rank, but I was the only black man in the entire camp. It must have felt really strange for him. Yeah. Coming from a majority black country to the UK, the only black man in the entire camp. And, you know, Carla, that's clearly not something that I can speak to. That's quite obviously outside my experience. So I think it's about time... We get someone on who can. So who's joining us today? It's Flight Lieutenant Trevor Edwards, who flew Jaguars for the RAF for a decade. Uh, To me, Trevor, you're a modern-day Johnny Smythe, one of the very few a black member of the RAF air crew. Uh, Trevor, I am honoured and slightly overawed to meet you. Likewise. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) So... Uh, Trevor, you've written a book called Average, A Training Diary, which tells you about what the experience was actually starting off in the RAF. I mean, but you also describe yourself as a very ordinary London kid. So how does that kid end up flying Jaguars? By having a, a passion for aviation. I mean, I would describe myself as a bit of an aviation geek when I was growing up as a, as a young man. And uh, it was my hobby, I went to university, I studied to be a geologist and at no point did I ever consider flying as a career because a a fighter pilot is a tall, blonde, blue-eyed person who is amazing at sports and uh, all-round fantastic at everything and that's, that's not me at all. And I just so happened to be at a jobs fair where the RAF were recruiting people and uh, stopped, started chatting to the guy there because I've got a passion about aviation and aeroplanes and it soon became evident to him that, uh, you know, that I, that I was keen on flying and he said, you're just the sort of person we're looking for. And when he said you're just the sort of person you're looking for, was he looking at you and thinking, ah, this, this young man is going to tick a lot of useful boxes... Uh, I wouldn't have thought so, actually. I would have thought that the reason that he said, you're just the sort of person we're looking for, is because I was so keen on flying. So keen on flying, so keen on aircraft. And uh, I got a university education, so educated, 
I said, you know, I mean, I played rugby at university, so I suppose he saw me as reasonably fit uh, with a passion for aviation. Those are the boxes I think he wanted to tick. I love the fact that you say the ideal of an RAF pilot is they're really good at sports, and then you just throw in, oh, I played rugby at university. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, I think that shows you're quite good at sport. Well, no, not really. I mean, I played rugby. I wasn't saying I was any good at it. So So you were in the RAF in the sort of the late 80s and, and and throughout the 90s? Yes, so for me, that puts you in the Top Gun generation. Was Tom Cruise doing all the right things? In some ways, yes. Um, but in a, a lot of other ways, no. Some of the stuff that, that he was doing, some of the flying, was a little bit correct, compacting <laughs> for the screen because, uh, you know, real dogfights don't happen in that little space. They are actually quite over a big area, but you couldn't, you couldn't convey that onto the big screen. I mean, as I subsequently discovered, you know, my phrase about pilots being tall, blonde, blue-eyed, all good-looking, amazing sportsmen. Well, Tom mm-hmm. Cruise isn't tall and blue-eyed. There is that. There is absolutely. That. I love that. Uh, a little bit correct. There you go. So we've heard a bit from Johnny about how he felt as the only black officer. And he was one of 500, these 500 black British and African and Caribbean uh, air crew. And that's out of about, at the time, 185,000 RAF aircrew overall in the war. Okay, we're not in a world war. The RAF is smaller and more professional. But you, Trevor, you weren't one of 500. If my maths are correct, there would probably have been about 20 or 30 black pilots in the RAF when you were around. 20 or 30? Yeah, possibly even less, actually. I never really, it never bothered me. Uh, I never really thought about it. And the thing with flying is that it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what you look like. You have to be able to pass the course, the qualification, the test. You get there on merit alone. So it is a great leveller in the fact that if you're doing it and you climb out of that aeroplane, no one can argue about the fact that you haven't earned it. Not everyone can. And you obviously did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to the pressure in a moment as well. Yeah. I was also listening to a rather uh, wonderful piece that you worked with with the Royal British Legion on, and you were talking also about, not only about how you, your experience, how you felt, but also your family and your, your communities. And you said that your community's reaction... Uh, was generally neutral. You know, a few people saying, you know, black people don't do that. Why are you why, why are you playing the white man's game, as it were? Yeah. It's an interesting reaction in that, and I, I kind of get it, because certainly in the 80s, you're kind of stereotyped. Mm. And people do that when they see you, and it still happens to me now, you know. It's not just the white people, it's the black people like that as well. Okay. I mean, to be honest with you, I tend to do it as well. I try to stop myself from labelling people when you meet them for the first time. You just have to write, just take people as you get them, and then you make an assessment of who they are, what they are, Mm. after you've spoken to them for a bit. In the book, 
that there's a priest in the RAF who continually asks, what tribe are you from? <laughs> uh, you've, got, you've got ground crew asking if you fly for the Saudi or the Nigerian yeah. Air Force. There's a naval commander who asks you a similar question. You're mistaken for a delivery driver yeah. by a corporal. Even African-American engineers... Air Force engineers are amazed at the idea that there could be black pilots in the RAF. I mean, that's a lot of pressure against you demonstrating your merit. Or is that that you have to work even harder than a, a tall, blonde, blue-eyed white pilot? You see, I don't consider that as me having to work harder. It's there you have to work hard. I, I mean, I am what I am. And uh, it's not my problem, it's your problem, you know, that, uh, that you are being ignorant, you know. And in some ways, it's quite nice that they, they mess up like that because you, and I don't do it deliberately, or didn't do it deliberately, we just embarrass them, you know. <laughs> and then they're embarrassed and then perhaps the next time they won't jump to conclusions so quickly. Yeah. So it's, it's their problem, really. That's how I used to think of it, really. Never, never bothered me. So given Johnny Smythe's own experience that he was very proud about being promoted, but he felt that he he was just the only black face around. Do you think things have changed in the 70 or 80 years since? Do you think the RAF is a different place from what it might have been uh, when they were uh, in it in the war? Definitely. Yeah, definitely changed. It's... Um... It's changed since I've been in the Air Force yeah, 25 years ago. Certainly, I found um, my peers in the Air Force when I was in there, they didn't bat an eyelid. They were quite used to seeing black people. They were quite happy. You know, it was, it was never a factor amongst my peers. It would only ever really be the more senior guys because they just weren't used to it. You know, they just weren't used to it. And almost very senior guys, you'd get some very stupid phrases coming from some of these guys because they were just ignorant, really. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say it was... Well, it wasn't nasty, it's just ignorance. So I suppose, is it a generational thing that the people who you were training with, they're now the people, if they're still in the RAF, they're at the top of the food chain and so they are dictating the culture of the organisation. Very much, yeah, very much. And the the young pilots now, you know, the they're more. there's more women. I don't think there's that many more actual minorities in the Air Force than, than in my day, but certainly a lot more women now. And it's improving. I honestly don't believe that they discriminate. I, I genuinely don't believe that. I don't think even in my day they didn't discriminate. But it's a case of trying to encourage people from minorities to, to join because I'm sure a lot of the problem is that they just don't think that they could do it. It's very easy to think, oh, you know, look at that guy or look at that girl. You have to be amazing to do that, and I'm not amazing. But no one's amazing. You know, they, they teach you to do the extraordinary. You don't instantly become extraordinary, you know, when you're born or growing up. You're taught to be extraordinary. So, getting back to Johnny, he's a bomber navigator, which means he's doing his best to get an aircraft over the target, and he's then also the person who releases the bombs. There's a crew of seven in his plane. He's called a short Sterling. That's not because it's short. It's actually longer than a Lancaster. It's longer than a Halifax. It's short because short brothers were the people who built it. 
And this is the thing that Johnny climbs into 27 times, knowing that he might never come back. Johnny himself said, We knew what lay ahead of us. Every day, we counted the number that returned. We also knew that there was a good chance that we would not return. You say that you were told at the beginning of your training that there was a 1 in 12 chance of being killed in a flying accident during a career in the RAF. If you're told that right at the beginning of your training, how, how does it, how do you deal with that potential for never coming back? You are young, indestructible, and you're going to live forever. So it's not going to happen to me, it's going to happen to you. And that is kind of how I used to deal with it. Yeah, it's not going to be me. It's going to be someone else. I like in the, in the book, and this isn't something that you were asked, but one of your colleagues was asked, do you pilots do anything but drink and talk about flying? To which your colleague, he pauses a bit and then he says, no, sometimes we just drink. <laughs> um, and it strikes me that sort of almost the only way that you can get through that existential fear is banter and not necessarily just alcohol, but putting some armour on yourself in that way. It is. Um, and the alcohol was a big part of it. But that whole camaraderie, that whole banter, it's a very good way of de-stressing. So when someone dies, so someone's, someone's flown into the ground and killed themselves, one of the first things that you do back at the base, when, once everyone lands, is that you go to the bar and you get his bar book. So you, there's no cash in the bars at the officer's mess. You literally you write down in a book what you've ordered. And at the end of the month, you get a bill. So you get that person's bar book and you drink on his bar book. So all the bills go to that person's that's died. At the end of the month, it gets divided amongst all the officers in a mess. But basically, you drink on his book and... Uh, you get it out because you have a one or two, you start relaxing and then you start talking about the good stuff, the bad stuff, you know, if you're getting emotional about it, everyone understands and you you might be in the bar for six, seven hours, you know, ten hours, you know, they, they won't close it as long as there are people in there. And it's a really good way of, I don't really know, grieving, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, of getting it off so that the next day when you go into work, you still got to get in the aeroplane and go flying again. And you are capable of doing that. I mean, you're still going to be affected, but you're not going to be, it's not going to de de be debilitating for you. Mm. And I know that they used to do something very similar in the war. But they had to, because otherwise you couldn't get up the next day and go, go and work. Keeps you sane. Keeps you grounded. So there's potentially that sort of existential fear and how you deal with that um, about never coming back and how you then grieve or mourn someone who never comes back. But there must, there must also be... Well, the only thing I could call it would just be nerves. I can tell you one incident, and this was... I think this is on one of my first ones out there, where I completely lost all of my capacity. And so I was down at 100 foot... 
coming into a tire now on the Jaguar to release a weapon and we had concrete bombs so there were actually things are going to be dropping off the aeroplane there were lots of switches you had to make to, to make sure these things and we were doing a quite a difficult um, attack whereby you were using the laser to get a range off the uh, off the target so this is down at a fairly low level as well so it wasn't a very ergonomic cockpit so I had one hand which I had to move from the throttle to the laser to designate the target and make sure that was there, back onto the throttle. And then I had, I can't remember, five or six switches to make to make sure that I got these these weapons off. And I had to make sure I was plus or minus 10 seconds over the target. And I've got about a minute and 30 to go to dropping. And on one of our radios, the guys further back in the formation were getting attacked by F-15s or something. So there's a there's a mini fight going on back there, which I could hear. And I'm looking over my shoulder and I could see where that was happening. I thought, right, it's not going to affect me. I'm still good. And then in front of me, it was raining concrete bombs right over my target. And I'm about 20 seconds away from it. So if I'd have flown through that, I would have been hit by these concrete bombs. And I completely lost... I can, well, we they call it maxed out. I was completely maxed out. And all I did was just head in a direction that there wasn't any raining bombs and fly in a straight line for probably two or three minutes. And if that was a war, I would have been shot down. There's no doubt about it. I would have been shot down. But that was all I could do because I'd completely lost it. I'd, I didn't know where target was I didn't know where my mates were all I was doing is flying in a straight line and I did that for two or three minutes and I was like okay so I'm, I'm flying now right okay so and then I started navigating again and then I started looking out again and then I started trying to develop where everyone else was and then you know trying to get back in the group but that took a while whilst I was trying to get myself back in again so it does happen Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All I'm thinking of is me in the Tesco car park. Uh, <laughs> Just where I've lost, I, I lose capacity to work out which way's left and which way's right. But, but I don't have concrete bombs hailing down. Hey, yeah, concrete bombs. It was raining. It was um, an American F 111 crew who were 10 minutes late. And I said, we run to plus or minus 10 seconds. They were 10 minutes late and they were at a. Uh, I think they were at 1,000 feet. We were at 100 foot. And they said that they were flying up to target and they were looking and they couldn't see anything. So they dropped. But, of course, we're down, camouflaged against the... And they couldn't see us. So and that must happen in, that must happen in war the whole time. All the time. a friendly fire about yeah. bombing your own planes. Yeah, very much, yeah. And, I mean, the reason that we say plus or minus 10 seconds is you have, you have to have enough time for the bombs to explode and then the debris to stop so that the, the next person doesn't fly through the or exploding bombs. So you have to be very accurate with the timings, certainly the way that we used to deliver the weapons back then. You, you want to join now, don't you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to be pushing trolleys in Tesco oh. car park. If we don't get sponsorship from Tesco's, we're going to be really having problems with this podcast. <laughs> So I'd just like to take us back to Johnny in terms of yeah. in terms of his experience. I mean, uh, yeah, he was not hit by friendly fire, but uh, it's the night of the 18th of November 1943, and this is Johnny's 27th mission. This is what he says. We were flying at 16,000 feet when the fighters came out of nowhere. They raked the fuselage 
and there were flames everywhere. Then the searchlights caught us. I was hit by a shrapnel, pieces from underneath piercing my abdomen going through my side. Another came through my seat and into my groin. I heard the pilot ordering us to bail out. We had some rough ones before, but this seemed to be the end. The astonishing thing is this, that they all bail out, and I mean all, they all get out. It wasn't one in four, only one in four of getting out of a sterling or anything like that. All seven of them get out, they survive their parachute jumps, and all spend the rest of the war as POWs. So that's uh, quite a result in a way. But And the astonishing thing as well, though, is that the plane flew on without a crew. I mean, there, there are pictures, it landed. It landed wow. in a German village, in the village of Kothhausen, and there are photos of it with German locals clambering all, all over it. So without a pilot, the plane landed. Do things like that happen? Yes, that means it was probably a fairly good pilot because if he's trimmed it out correctly, uh, then it would just, yeah, continue on in a straight line and probably, yeah, slowly descend and, yeah. So Johnny parachutes to safety. I mean, he's in a barn uh, when the Germans arrive. After you have been bombing a town, you are shot down and you are caught. The people are all against you, whether you are black or white. But in the case of a black man, it was worse. Because I heard them shouting what I knew afterwards when I could speak a bit of German. Let's kill him. He felt that actually being black saved him because the Germans were so astonished at the very idea that there could be a black man uh, in their barn. And, and uh, an officer at that, um, uh, that was more than they could come to terms with. They just stood there gazing at him. He would then spend the rest of the war in a prisoner of war camp, Starlag Luft One, and he stays there until he's liberated by the Red Army. He's very aware of his position, and, and there are two things about his position. Obviously, there's a question that he's black, but also, as we see from the photo, he's really tall. He's six foot four, six foot five. So he helps the escape committee, but he knows that it's trying to escape is not is not going to be good for him. Johnny says, I don't think a six foot five black man would have got very far in Pomerania. <laughs> and there is this sort of constant reminder about what the war was actually about. I mean, when Johnny was being interrogated, the Nazi officer screamed at him, you as a black man should not be involved in a white man's war. And I think that was implicitly understood by black British people and uh, uh, Caribbean and uh, black African people that as Lillian Bader said, if Hitler won, we would have ended up in the ovens. You heard of a guy called Cy Grant? Cy Grant is... Isn't Cy Grant the guy who was... He's Guyanese, isn't he? Oh, you're good. So yeah. My parents are from Guyana. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so Cy Grant is Guyanese, isn't he? Like a multicultural centre yeah. guy. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. and he was... So he was in, he was RAF in, in the war and was oh, captured and ended up that. in a prisoner of war camp. Right. And his photo was actually printed in a German newspaper, say referring to him as a member of the RAF of indeterminate race. And yeah, and then after the war, he he had a singing career. He was he had a BBC. Yeah, that's show. it. He was on telly. Yeah, he was on telly. Yeah. Um, the thing that's just brilliant for me 
one of the puppets in Captain Scarlet was based on him. Really? Yeah. And Cy Grant did the voice for it. Did not know that. And then he ended up doing multicultural festivals. See, this is all the stuff that I wish I knew as a teenager. I did not, I had no idea at all. None. Yeah. None whatsoever. It's brilliant, these guys. There's, when I did the thing for the the RF Museum, uh, was in the archives, chogging through, and pictures of black Spitfire pilots just blew my mind. Just blew my mind. There was one guy, looked like my uncle, and he's lounging on the wing of this Spitfire. You know, awesome. Absolutely awesome. So, Johnny is liberated by the Red Army, but he manages to get back towards, towards the West. He returns to Britain. He doesn't go back to Sierra Leone. And he joins the colonial office. Mm. Uh, that's a, it's a government department which lasted for nearly 200 years. It closed down in the mid-60s, I think. And I think probably all you need to know about the colonial office is that for 50 years, it was known as the war and colonial office. Mm. And that was pretty much what it was dealing with. Getting back to Johnny, the important thing for him here is the Windrush which symbolically had started life in the German Navy. It was known as the Monte Rosa, and chillingly it was used by the Nazis to transport Norwegian Jews to their deaths in Auschwitz. So it was rather astonishing that this is the ship which then defines symbolically, again, the beginning of multicultural Britain. Because obviously there have been uh, black people in Britain for centuries, but... I suppose the importance of Windrush and the importance for it, this in Johnny's story is that the ship was originally meant to be dropping ex-servicemen back to Jamaica. But when they got there, it became very clear that Jamaica's economy was in a worse state than Britain. Johnny was on board the Windrush and he was on board not because he was returning anywhere, he was the senior officer. And he was tasked, when they arrived in Jamaica, with coming up with a plan. He eventually then gave permission for the ship to take on more passengers and to turn around. And so it's on the 22nd of June, 1948, after the wind rush had docked the previous day at Tilbury, which is in, uh, uh, just in London, 800 people from the Caribbean disembark and begin their lives in Britain. OK, Trevor, your parents came to... Britain from the Caribbean. Would that be in the 1950s? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm struck. The Windrush becomes white Britain's way of acknowledging black people are living here. Mm. And, and it becomes sort of a, a rather easy uh, catch-all that we just say, oh, the Windrush generation or, or, or... But then that's what you are exposed to. And that's kind of... Not, not so much what you talk, but that's what you... You, you glean. And I, I was exactly the same. You know, if you said to me, even as an Air Force pilot... How many black pilots there have been? I could start naming the guys who are there currently. I knew of a few people in the 70s. But if you said that there were black pilots in the Second World War, I said, no, no, there weren't. I did not know about these guys. Didn't know anything about it. It's not in, it's not publicised, it's not at all, it's, it's not in any of the films, you know, they all, so why would you assume that that existed? Yeah. Well, you might want to know what happened next. Uh, for Johnny. He trains at the Inns of Court as a barrister. He does return to Sierra Leone. And in Sierra Leone, not only does he become a QC, 
he rises to become Attorney General. One of the astonishing stories about Johnny is a story from his later years. Johnny might have met the man who shot him out of the sky. This is how his son remembered it. He was at a cocktail party at the British ambassador's residence in Freetown, where he ended up talking to the German ambassador about the war. When told about the date and place that Johnny was shot down, the ambassador turned pale. My God, Johnny, I got my first kill on that day. I shot down a British bomber. They put their arms around each other and were almost in tears. Trevor, I mean, if you could meet Johnny now, is there anything that you'd want to say to him? I'd want to talk flying to him. Really would want to talk flying to him. Just because... It's a very different experience that I've had. And just the idea of, as you say, getting into that metal tube and they're pretty much unheated, they're unpressurised, it's at night, 27 times. Awesome. One last thing, Trevor. We're asking every guest to bring along their own unsung hero someone we've never heard of, but we really should have. So can you tell us who you think should be in the Trapped History Hall of Fame? So in your Hall of Fame, I would recommend Robbie Clark. Have you ever heard of Robbie Clark? Never heard of him. So Robbie Clark was the first black pilot in, it was the Royal Flying Corps back in 1917, First World War. So Robbie Clark was a Jamaican I believe he was a driver in Jamaica, that's, you know, in the days when there weren't too many cars. And he volunteered and paid his own way to come up to England because he thought it was a fight that he should be getting involved in for various reasons. Paid his own way and joined the Royal Flying Corps as a mechanic. And he um, eventually started flying training and qualified as a pilot. I think he was pilot 2,400. He used to have individual numbers. And he flew a reconnaissance aircraft over the front lines and actually was um, shot down and managed to return to his, uh, to his airfield. Uh, he'd been shot in the spine, I think, and in the leg, but managed to put the aeroplane down on the airfield because in those days they didn't have parachutes. They used to fly around these flimsy little things with no parachutes at all. So it was no case of jumping out. Mm. He had to stay with it and managed to save the life of his uh, observer in the back, even though he was badly injured, and then spent the rest of the war in, uh, in hospital and eventually went back down to Jamaica. The only reason we know about that story is because they were looking through the archives at the RF Museum and found this picture of this black guy in the, in the Royal Flying Corps uniform from 1917 and started to do a bit more investigating and found this story of, uh, of Robbie Clark. And uh, he died in Jamaica in 1981, I believe, actually. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow, indeed. <laughs> he must have had so much... I don't know whether it would be self-belief, but you know, to take himself halfway around the world to go and do something which no one else from his his town or yeah. his country had probably ever done. Fly, I mean, to fly a plane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Every bit of it is amazing. The whole, you know, the how, what he achieved. Yeah, incredible. And to go from being ground crew to yeah. flying. And in those days as well. 
having been in one of those little machines, you know, they're hardly any instruments, you know, it's string and wood and paper, incredibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous. And as I said, you know, if you get, if you got shot down, that's it. You know, you're, you're not jumping out. They fall out of the sky, they burn, you know, just dreadful. But yeah, it's sticking at it. Amazing, amazing story. That's brilliant. We, I, we will definitely, Carla, have Robbie in our Trapped History Hall of Fame. Thank you very much for that, Trevor. A pleasure. An absolute pleasure. That was fascinating. Johnny's life is just so huge. I mean, it is, isn't it? It, it takes in everything. War, racism, pride, liberation. He has everything in his life. Trevor's experience confirmed and also contrasted with Johnny's experience as well in the Second World War. When he experienced racism, which he, which he did, and he, he talked about that, it was about people's ignorance. Mm. And the important thing for Trevor, and I think probably the important thing for Johnny, was that it's about ability. Because mm. if you don't have the ability, you're not quite dead in the water, but dead in the sky. Yeah, it's true. It's like he'd earned the respect of his peers through the rigorous training, and that was what was important, that he could deliver yeah. when he needed to. And so he had that confidence of his ability. I think that obviously shone through. The other thing which um, struck me as well was really just talking about what, what it's like when you get a group of, in this case, a group of young men together whose daily experience is one of potentially never coming back. Mm. And how people cope and how people find ways of corralling and, and managing those fears and those stresses and those tensions. It's not something I've ever really thought about, how people deal with grief in those situations, and they would be presented with that often. So it was a real insight to understand how he and his peers dealt with it at the time. It was clear also that, Second World War that Johnny's experience and the experience of other people like Billy Strachan and stuff, you know, there, there's there's that sort of bravado and a bit of that sort of cockiness and, and banter. And just at the depth of the friendships that are formed in such life or death situations, you would become very close when, mm. you know, someone mm. else is being your eyes and ears and you wouldn't last five minutes in the RAF if you, if people couldn't trust you. Like, trust was absolutely everything. Yeah. And I think those Trump friendships will have persisted from people like Johnny and uh, Ulrich Cross and other people fighting and flying in the Second World War. That those, that the, the trust which is built within a, a crew or in a bomber or within a, a group of people who are fighter pilots on the same squadron, that must be, you know, you, you, you're trusting your life with these people. Mm, those friendships must be very unique. Something else which relates to that is what so many of these people went on to do afterwards. Johnny Smythe, people like Ulrich Cross, all of these people went on. It wasn't just that they did amazing things in the war. They then continued doing astonishing and amazing things. And it feels as if that the war and their experience in it was just one part of their life, but a part which then gave them that experience of being tested Mm. and then allowed them to use that experience in independence movements, in a whole range of fields where they would excel. It's like having that experience fast-tracks you through life and 
you know, you really looked at yourself, you know who you are and then you're invincible or you feel invincible and you can tackle anything. It just gives you supreme confidence. MK, what would you take from what Trevor has been saying to us? I think his perspective is not one where he is characterised by what people might perceive to be his limitations or things that might be working against him. That's kind of why he's a special human being. I think he has to have that level of determination. You know, they knew that they, the odds were against him, but they were going to be, they were going to do what they needed to do regardless, you know. You have to be a very special human being to have that in you as well. Mm. Mm. So don't acknowledge limitations? Maybe acknowledge them, but um, sort of just work around them. I think, okay. Yeah. yeah. I guess eventually, even those people that might have been ignorant towards him would see how good he was at what he did, and there's nothing that they can say about that. Eventually, that speaks for itself. Especially in those high-pressure situations, I get the impression that when you're dealing with life and death, the other stuff becomes less important. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't sweat the small stuff after yeah. you've done that. I think no. kind of, there's a respect you start to have for one another and you see, okay, this, this, is, this, this is a big deal here, you know. So what's up next, Oswin? Uh, it's the halfway point in the series, Carla. <gasps> Ooh. So I think we should do something different. Okay, different. What like? So far, we've always done people. Mm -hmm. So I think for our next episode, for Trapped History, we should be doing a thing. A thing? Yes, a thing. Hmm, okay, what thing are you thinking? Well, the thing that I'm thinking <laughs> is the memorial to heroic self-sacrifice. And that is a thing, is it? Are you having me on? No, it really isn't. <laughs> uh, it's a Trapped History thing more than anything else. It will, Carla, I guarantee it will change the way you think about things. Mm, it's changing the way I'm thinking about you, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, then. The memorial it is. Fantastic. You're going to need a coat, Carla? <laughs> I'm going to need a coat. Why? Well, it's winter. Coats, yeah, just to be clear. Coat, umbrella, boots, hat, gloves. OK, I'll bring a tent as well, just in you case. You too, MK. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, um, and, you know, it'll be raining, so... Waterproofs. Waterproofs, that's oh, the word. Yeah. Waterproofs. <laughs> Cagool. Do we, do we have tools anymore? Pack-a-mac. Yeah. Pack-a-mac. Oh, God, <laughs> blimey. You're, 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 you've got young children. <laughs> you've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been MK Lee. Catch up with more Trapped History on Instagram and visit trappedhistory.com for transcripts, extended interviews and more. See you soon. Mm-hmm.